0: Welcome to History Nachos History is more than just names and dates It is the heritage of humanity Here, we are all about the greatest real stories So take a scoop and jump on in 1860 America stands at a major crossroads Slavery is on the ballot Decades of tension and controversy have torn the young nation apart. Political violence on both sides threatens to cause a civil war. The founding generation declared that all men are created equal and laid a foundation to complete the vision. Now America must choose its path, push towards truly equal freedom, or permanently compromise the nation's moral character. Welcome to Episode 17, America's Big Choice, The Election of 1860. Democracy cannot succeed unless those who express their choice are prepared to choose wisely. Franklin D. Roosevelt Every American presidential election has major consequences. With each one, the people of the United States choose a path. That is why being an informed voter is so important. Across American history, a few elections really stand out as defining decision points. Roosevelt first ran in 1932, which was one of those critical elections. America needed to decide how much power to give the government to address the Great Depression. In the more recent past, some elections are so iconic that I only need to say the years. 1960. 1980. 2008, and of course, 2016. 1860 is another election where simply mentioning the year conjures up all kinds of images. Before going any further, please remember to comment, like, and share. For those of you who really like the music, it is all credited in the description. Also, stick around at the end for bonus content. Like any presidential election, 1860 was not just about things that happened in 1860. The controversy over slavery had existed since the Founding Fathers were drafting the Declaration of Independence. In terms of a divisive issue everyone had strong opinions on, I would say the closest thing today is the abortion debate. America had basically agreed to disagree in 1820 with the Missouri Compromise. It drew a geographic line making slavery legal in the south and illegal in the north. As the United States began expanding westward, everyone started arguing about allowing slavery in the new territories. Then in 1854, something happened that irreversibly set events into motion. The Kansas-Nebraska Act. Modern-day Kansas and Nebraska were areas not yet officially incorporated into the United States. Making them territories and allowing settlement was in the works, but it all got held up by the issue of legalizing slavery. Enter Stephen A. Douglas, a Democrat senator from Illinois. Remember that name. He will be a big player in this story. Douglas advocated allowing the new territories to vote on whether to allow slavery within their borders. The major problem was that Kansas and Nebraska were north of the no-slavery line. The Missouri Compromise would have to be repealed, which would get rid of the dividing line and make the entire American West up for grabs. The two main political parties back then were the Democrats and the Whigs. Democrats were generally pro-slavery, and the Whigs were split. Northern Whigs often strongly opposed slavery, and they vehemently resisted the Douglas proposal at every turn. The whole thing became a huge political controversy. Democrats formed a voting coalition with Southern Whigs to pass the Douglas proposal as the Kansas-Nebraska Act. At that time, the president was a pro-slavery Northern Democrat named Franklin Pierce. Pierce signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act into law with the idea of creating another compromise that would calm things down again. Ever since the Missouri Compromise first passed, periodic adjustments were made to keep the peace. The Kansas-Nebraska Act seemed like just another tweak to keep the divided nation together. Instead, Kansas and Nebraska flew into chaos. In order to influence the vote, supporters from both sides flooded into the area. Pretty soon, the factions began fighting with each other. And I am not just talking about shouting matches and protesting. Murders, looting, and shooting became commonplace. It turned into a gigantic gang war that became known as Bleeding Kansas. The conflict lasted for years, with no end in sight, and dominated the rest of Pierce's term. Pierce became so politically radioactive that his own party did not even let Pierce run for a second term. Tensions grew incredibly high going into the 1856 election. A pro-slavery congressman even walked into the Senate floor with a hickory cane and beat an abolitionist senator within an inch of his life. The whole Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas debacle destroyed the Whig Party. Pro-slavery Whigs joined with the Democrats, and abolitionist Whigs started a new party, the Republicans. The Republicans made great gains rather quickly, but in 1856, they were not yet powerful enough to win the presidency the Democrats ended up victorious in the 1856 election with James Buchanan. He ran as a moderate and had been serving abroad during all the Kansas-Nebraska controversies. It was similar to how America elected Jimmy Carter after Watergate since he was so far removed from the whole thing. Just two days after Buchanan's inauguration, the Supreme Court passed the Dred Scott decision. It denied all rights to former slaves who had escaped to the North. The court flagrantly ignored the law. Even today, the Dred Scott decision is still considered the worst Supreme Court ruling in U.S. history. The North exploded in outrage. Many states simply refused to enforce the ruling. Then Buchanan doubled down and tried to admit Kansas to the Union as a slave state to settle the matter. Thankfully, he was blocked. The Republican Party saw a huge upsurge in popularity. In the midterm elections, they became the largest plurality in the House of Representatives. However, Democrats still had the presidency and the Senate. Both of those can block the House from doing anything, which is precisely what happened for the second half of Buchanan's term. Republicans still tried to pass a bunch of anti-slavery laws in order to force Democrats to publicly vote against them. Which brings us to 1860. Everything was coming to a head. It became clear that the 1860 election would determine America's future as a nation. The Dred Scott decision meant nowhere was safe. Even the North. If Democrats won the presidency and majorities in Congress, they could pass all kinds of pro-slavery laws at the federal level. Once that happened, It would be nearly impossible to reverse. Or would the radical upstart Republicans get enough power to stop the advance of slavery? For them it was an uphill battle. The Republican Party had popular support but were opposing seriously powerful special interest groups. Republicans had also never held a majority in Congress or won the presidency. Remember, People at the time did not know how things would turn out. They had to live with the uncertainty. As the tension built, the nation became more and more divided. The Democrats largely agreed on being pro-slavery, but became split on how to go about it. Northern Democrats mainly wanted to keep the Union together and find another compromise allowing slavery. Business as usual. Southern Democrats were tired of all the hassle, and wanted to leave the Union altogether. This difference of opinion led to serious drama at the Democrat National Convention. After a big dispute over the Democrat Party's official stance on slavery, a bunch of Southern delegates withdrew. It meant the Democrats could not officially nominate their candidate. By the way, the Democrat candidate was none other than Stephen A. Douglas. Yeah the Kansas-Nebraska Act guy. The Democrats had to take a mulligan and call a second convention. Lots of Southern Democrats boycotted the second convention, but the party nominated Douglas anyway. The Southern Democrats were so angry about it that they refused to recognize Douglas as the nominee. Instead, the Southerners declared their own nominee, John C. Breckinridge, the sitting vice president. Both Douglas and Breckinridge claimed to be the official Democrat candidate. As if presidential elections were not complicated enough already. The Republican National Convention also had a bunch of drama. It was contested between two candidates, William H. Seward and Abraham Lincoln. Seward was an accomplished career politician and one of the big leaders in the Republican Party. Everyone thought he would get the Republican nomination. Lincoln did not have much experience in public office, but he was a nationally known thought leader in the Republican cause. Just two years earlier, he had run against Stephen A. Douglas for the Senate. Their debates from that campaign became legendary and embodied the national debate about slavery. Douglas won the election, but Lincoln's arguments had stirred the nation. When it came time for the delegates to vote, Seward had more than Lincoln but not enough to win outright. It took three rounds of voting, and Lincoln ultimately came out on top. The election became Lincoln versus Douglas round two, except this time the whole country could vote. Then there were the Constitutional Unionists. They were a small third party that mainly wanted everyone to get along. With all the upheaval, it appeared that they could have a real chance. The constitutional unionists didn't even want to talk about slavery and instead focused on keeping the union together. So basically they wanted to continue kicking the can down the road for the sake of peace. They nominated a former senator named John Bell. For those of you keeping score, this election had three parties and four presidential candidates. In the American system, that is absolutely bananas. Now that conventions and nominations were finished, the stage was set for the main event. Each candidate followed very different strategies. Stephen A. Douglas, the Northern Democrat, went on a huge campaign speaking tour all over the country. Remember, this was back in horse and buggy days, so it took serious effort. Douglas had to promote slavery in the North and convince the South to stay in the Union. Not easy tasks, but he had fame and public speaking skills that could potentially pull it off. John C. Breckinridge, the Southern Democrat, barely campaigned at all. During the whole election, he only gave one speech. There was no way the South would vote for Lincoln, and Breckinridge's whole nomination was based on the South rejecting Douglas. His only real competition was Bell, the third-party guy. Abraham Lincoln did something in between. He went the traditional route and coordinated a campaign from home. For Lincoln, the main battle was in the North between him and Douglas. If Lincoln could carry most of the North, he would win the election. Lincoln had already debated Douglas seven times in the 1858 senatorial election, so the Lincoln Douglas debates got published as a book. No need to rehash the same material. Lincoln also campaigned on stopping the spread of slavery without abolishing it where slavery was already legal, which was a position many people in the North could accept. There were tons of rallies and parades, so Lincoln focused on keeping everyone in the campaign on message. Lincoln's biggest fear was that wedge issues would fracture the party. The Republicans needed to stay united and bring a huge voter turnout in order to stand a chance. The fateful day came on November 6th, 1860. The moment had arrived for the American people to make Their big choice. The time for debate was over. The votes cast would finally settle the issue of expanding slavery, one way or the other. Millions of people turned out to stand and be counted. 80% of eligible voters cast a ballot. For perspective, the 2016 election only had a turnout of 55%. Truly, the people had spoken. That night, election results started arriving over the telegraph. When New York reported in, Lincoln clinched the victory. In Springfield, Illinois, an overwhelmed Lincoln read aloud the telegram. It ended with, We tender you our congratulations upon this magnificent victory. The whole city exploded in celebration and partied until dawn. Knowing how the election broke down, is critical for understanding the aftermath. Lincoln swept the North, and won the most electoral votes by far. If you are unfamiliar with the whole electoral votes thing, it basically means Lincoln won a bunch of states with big populations. The North had urbanized and industrialized, so it had a huge population. Pro-slavery and pro-secession Breckenridge won most of the South, with the exception of some states bordering the North. Shocker. Three of those border states went to Bell, who managed to get 12.6% of the popular vote. It was a really good showing for a third party, but Bell came nowhere close to winning. Douglas came in second for the overall popular vote, but only won Missouri. Most Southerners wanted secession, and most Northerners were against expanding slavery. Douglas was on the losing side of both issues. Never before had an election been so regionally defined. The electoral map of 1860 literally shows a continuous line between Republican states and the ones supporting other candidates. Southern Democrats became extremely angry with the election results. In short, they refused to ever recognize Lincoln as their president. It made the reaction of modern Democrats to Donald Trump's victory in 2016 look tame. Southern state legislatures immediately set in motion a formal process to break away from the Union. For the South, this was a make-or-break moment for secession. The moderate Buchanan was still in office until March, and now he was a lame-duck president. Buchanan had mentally checked out since the election was over. The South figured he probably would not stop a secession effort. Once Lincoln was sworn in, it would be a whole different story. Lincoln had already made it abundantly clear that secession would not be tolerated during his administration. In late December, South Carolina seceded from the Union. Imagine an entire state refusing to recognize government authority like the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone during the riots in Seattle, Washington. As expected, Buchanan let them get away with it. South Carolina seized all federal assets except one. Fort Sumter, an island fortress in Charleston Harbor. The garrison there was now suddenly surrounded. In January, Buchanan sent a ship down to deliver supplies and reinforcements. However, South Carolina had brought a ton of cannons to the harbor, and they shot at the ship until it turned around and ran. At this point, Buchanan basically said, Screw it. I am almost out of here anyway. Let Lincoln deal with this. By February, the rest of the Deep South had joined South Carolina to form the Confederate States of America. When Lincoln finally got sworn in, he had to decide how to handle the delicate situation. Negotiating with the Confederacy directly would legitimize its existence. Aggressive action would give the South an excuse to declare open war, but failure to act would betray everything Lincoln believed and had campaigned on. In early April, Lincoln decided to send a group of supply ships to reinforce Fort Sumter. Not aggressive, but also not leaving his troops to the wolves like Buchanan. Lincoln made it clear that shooting at the supply ships would be considered an act of war. Unlike Buchanan, Lincoln was no pushover. Lincoln also realized that if war with the South did break out, it needed to be because the South fired first. Otherwise, sending in federal troops would be much harder to justify, and would erupt in political controversy that could compromise the war effort. When the Confederacy learned about the supply ships, they demanded the Fort Sumter garrison to leave and offered terms. It was roughly similar to the situation with the federal courthouse during the riots in Portland, Oregon, except in this scenario both sides had military-grade artillery. The Confederate envoys cordially informed the garrison that they would open fire in an hour. At 4.30 a.m. April 12, 1861, Confederate artillery began pounding Fort Sumter. The garrison withstood nonstop bombardment for 38 hours straight. They finally raised a white surrender flag after running out of ammunition for the cannons. The Confederates ceased fire and sent a delegation to the island. In recognition of the Federal soldiers' bravery, the Confederates allowed them to salute and ceremonially retire the flag before being granted safe passage to the ships Lincoln had sent. No turning back now. The North and South were in a full-blown war, and the South had fired the first shot. America would never be the same again. The attack on Fort Sumter began the Civil War. Both sides formed armies. For over four years, Americans killed each other by the thousands in the fight over slavery. To this day, it is the deadliest war America has ever fought. The issue of slavery had been brewing since America's founding. During the 1850s and 1860s, it boiled over. Those times became the ultimate test of character. Long before the war started, normal people took a personal stand by showing up to vote on Election Day. In 1860, America chose to finally live up to its most sacred founding ideal, that all men are created equal. You have officially made it to the bonus material, the guacamole on these history nachos. Stick around to hear about the aftermath, modern relevance, or anything else we decide to throw in. The North ultimately won the Civil War. As the fighting started wrapping up, three constitutional amendments were enacted to permanently settle the issue of slavery. The 13th Amendment fully abolished slavery everywhere in the United States. The movie Lincoln is all about the struggle to make that happen. Daniel Day-Lewis went way above and beyond to accurately portray President Lincoln, which earned him the Oscar for Best Actor. The 14th Amendment guaranteed equal protection under the law. It remains the constitutional basis for modern anti-discrimination statutes. The Civil Rights Movement, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1950s and 60s, was mainly about enforcing rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. The 15th Amendment made it illegal for states to refuse people the right to vote based on race or former status as a slave. Southern states still created Jim Crow voting requirements as a workaround, but they could no longer openly ban black people from voting. The Jim Crow laws were later overturned, and today citizens of all races vote in the South. Even after the Civil War effectively ended, some Southern extremists still refused to accept Lincoln as their president. Records indicate thousands expatriated to Latin America, especially Brazil. One extremist named John Wilkes Booth took it to a whole different level by assassinating Lincoln. However, some of the extremists remained stateside and created an organized terror network. The Ku Klux Klan, or KKK. They still exercised considerable influence well into the 20th century. Even as late as 2010, a former Klan leader named Robert Byrd was one of the most powerful and long-serving Democrat senators. As for today, when I look at the rioting, self-declared autonomous zones, and states refusing to recognize federal authority, I cannot help but think of the 1850s and 1860s. 2020 is shaping up to be a hugely consequential election on par with 1860. To the Americans listening, no matter what you choose, it is your civic duty to do the research and think deeply about which candidate lines up with your values. Then go to the polls on election day and vote your conscience. For anyone else in the world who can vote, the same general principle applies. This whole freedom and democracy deal only works if the citizens are actively involved. If you want more details on the buildup to the Civil War and the 1860 election, there are tons of resources available. That is a big perk of American history. Lots of stuff is written down, originally in English, and well-preserved. The Smithsonian Institute put out some great articles that follow Election Day 1860 and the attack on Fort Sumter in high detail by using first-hand accounts. The links will be posted as part of the extended bonus material on Parlor. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Our contact information and social media sites are in the description. Older episodes are all freely available on YouTube and Bitshoot. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation on Patreon or PayPal. It is the digital version of putting change in a singer's tip jar. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Until next time, thanks for listening.